Well, for one more time, at least for a while, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke and find your way to the very end of the book at chapter 24, of Luke chapter 24. Today we bring to a close our study of the Gospel of Luke. Though we've had other things that we've done in the middle, in total for this book, 89 weeks ago, we looked at the opening words where Luke explained the purpose of his Gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he says, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account. Luke tells us that he has written about the things that have been accomplished in an orderly way. That is, specifically the events that have unfolded in the life of Jesus who came as the Savior for sinners. Luke has written an orderly account. That is, he has written a historically accurate account. He wants to know exactly what happened. And he has written about the pouring out of God's mercy and grace and the sending of Jesus as the promised Christ. And one of the major themes that we've seen, especially in these last weeks, is that Luke, is want, Luke wants us to be clear that what has happened is, is nothing that should be unexpected or new. It is part of the long plan of God seen unfolding in the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus would come as the Messiah and save a people for Himself. Over and over again throughout Luke's Gospel, we saw angels and prophets and Jesus Himself saying, this is the plan of God in your midst. This is the unfolding, the keeping of God's promises before you. And quotation after quotation after quotation from the Old Testament showing Christ as its fulfillment. Luke wants us to see not what people are accomplishing, but what God Himself is accomplishing among His people. Of course, the great work was the work of salvation. In chapter 19, Jesus makes clear that he had come to seek and save the lost. And throughout this gospel, we see him doing exactly that. Seeking out those that are in clear need of God, offering them encouragement as the Savior of the world. The salvation that would ultimately be accomplished through his own death and resurrection. We saw how this was emphasized not just in the teachings of Jesus, but also in the amount of space given over to that final week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. Salvation brought by Jesus was not merely for Israel or even a certain group of people in Israel, but Luke showed that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. We saw that not just in Jesus' teaching, but in His interaction with Gentiles. We saw that Jesus went even among His own people to those that were sick and were poor and were marginalized by society. They were those that many did not want around them, but Jesus went and was in their midst and ministered to them. Ultimately, He gave not only grace, but His very body, beaten, bloodied, and burdened with their sins under God's wrath on a Roman cross. Having died as a substitute for sinners, though, Jesus was raised back to life by God. And as we saw recently, appeared to His struggling disciples and helped them. He brought understanding. He opened their eyes to see that these were all the things that God wanted to accomplish through him. And so today we come to the final verses of Luke where Jesus once again keeps his word and returns to his Father in glory. Beginning at verse 50, Luke says, that Christ then led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them 
and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. May God bless us today through the reading and the explanation of his infallible and inerrant word. More than anything, this morning we should walk away from these verses encouraged. We want to leave Luke's gospel with a deepened faith in Christ and an optimistic willingness to see the news of Christ spread throughout the entire world through us. That confidence, though, it doesn't come from what we see in us. Rather, it comes from what we see in Christ. And so this morning, this is where we begin. We begin by seeing the ascended Christ. The ascended Christ. Remember, we saw how after the resurrection, Jesus would uh, just appear in the midst of his disciples. Then he would also vanish from their midst just as quickly. Now, it's interesting, at the very end, before he goes to the Father, he does not want to leave any doubts in the mind of his disciples what has happened to him, where he's going. And so rather than just disappear, he visibly ascends before their eyes. Luke says that Jesus was carried up into heaven. Now, in case you've missed it, many of the titles of the sermons over the last several weeks have all used the word king. Why? Because this was the accusation, remember, from the Jews against Jesus in order to have him stand trial by the Romans. They meant it as a trumped-up charge, but in reality, they spoke better than they knew. Jesus was indeed their king. As God in the flesh, he was their king. And as the promised Christ, he was their king. And now in these verses, we see Jesus enthroned above Israel and the world as king. His ascension is the equivalent of a coronation ceremony. Just as he promised in the upper room, Christ now ascends back to the glories of heaven, glories that he had set aside when he took on flesh and came into this world. He ascends back to the glories of heaven to be enthroned at the right hand of his Father. And this morning as we consider Jesus' ascension, his enthronement, we want to ask, what does that mean for us? And we have to say from the outset that probably when we talk about the gospel, this is the part that probably receives the least amount of attention. A a theology of Christ's ascension is probably the most underserved in Scripture. So if you have any thoughts of going off and writing a PhD, this is your thesis topic here that I would commend to you. This morning we will not be able to exhaust the benefits brought to us through Christ's ascension, but we do want to see the essentials come to light, and specifically we want to see what Luke directs us to, and it begins by noting that in his enthronement, through his ascension, Christ reigns with blessing for his people. Christ reigns with blessing. Luke says that Christ led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from him and was carried up into heaven. For those of you that uh, perhaps are worried about or have friends that are worried about the integrity of the Bible, this is contrasted to elsewhere where we see that Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives. But there's not really a contrast. Luke is just being more specific here. For Bethany lied, uh, lays at the edge of the Mount of Olives. And you have to think about that day. It must have been a pretty dramatic sight to behold. Uh, Christ gathering his people to himself and much as the priest would do under the old covenant, he lifts his hands up as a sign of blessing and actually begins to bless them. 
And then while he is issuing that blessing, that blessing, that benediction, he begins to ascend up before their eyes into the very glories of heaven. So while the benediction is being received by the disciples, Christ himself is received into heaven. Now we have no idea what those words actually were. What was he saying? What was he praying, announcing by way of blessing upon them? The Holy Spirit has not revealed that to us in the scriptures. Nevertheless, many passages in the New Testament point back to this moment in Christ's life as the basis for all the blessings that come to us in the Son. So for example, in Ephesians 1, Paul says that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Don't miss that. That doesn't just mean that we don't just take those things as abstract ideas and to break down, okay, so he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. No, notice what Paul is doing. He is picking up on the theology of the ascension. Our blessings flow where? From the heavenly places. Why? Because that's where Christ is and because we are in him. So in Paul's mind, the ascension is crucial for us having the blessings of God poured out upon us as his people. And so again, we might ask, what are these blessings? And this is a sermon series in and of itself, but I do want to highlight for you to help you understand the kinds of blessings that come from Christ through his ascension. So first of all, we understand from John 16 and Jesus' own words that Christ's ascension guarantees the giving of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If you have any uh, questions about whether or not uh, those of a more orthodox nature in terms of denomination are right, did the Spirit just proceed from the Father or did, as we believe, He proceed from the Father and the Son? This seems pretty clear. Jesus goes to heaven and sends the Spirit along with the Father. That's for the theology nerds in the audience, of which I am one. Second of all, Christ's ascension allows us to, allows Him to intercede for us. Romans 8, Paul asks, who is to condemn? The answer, no one. Why? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has been raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? So Satan wants to accuse us. He wants to condemn us. Who can do that? Jesus himself is our mediator before God. Third, Christ's ascension secures Jesus' place as our perfect high priest. Hebrews 9 says Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not into the physical temple in Jerusalem. Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. He has ascended now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus ascends and serves as our high priest in heaven. Fourth, Christ's ascension provides for the ongoing and ultimate growth of the church. Paul, once again, Ephesians 4 says, therefore, quoting from the Old Testament, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, namely the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Jesus ascends, and through the Spirit, He lavishes gifts on His people. Have you ever been there on the last night of Rock the Block when we're getting ready to leave and we're down to the bottom of the candy bag and you just begin taking handfuls and throwing it into the crowd of kids, causing mass chaos and panic and fun? So also is the image of Christ ascending to heaven and launching out graciously, abundantly, gifts to his church. Gifts in the form of leaders, but also gifts that in, of those leaders that invest in you that the church might grow to maturity. We also see that Christ's ascension assures, of, assures us of his return in glory and judgment. In Acts 1, Luke begins the, his second volume, Acts, by coming back to this spot. It kind of does a short little rewind. Like, remember last time, This is what was going on. And two angels tell the disciples as they're still kind of just standing around. You know, he's gone. They can't see him. They're just looking in heaven thinking, whoa, what an amazing thing. And the angels say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Jesus Christ is going to return. Finally, Christ's ascension gives us hope of future fellowship with God. Jesus told his disciples before he went to the cross, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I think Matthew Henry rightly comments on these verses from the end of Luke's gospel. While he was blessing them, He parted from them, not as if he were taken away before he had said all that he had to say, but to intimate that his being parted from them did not put an end to his blessing them. For the intercession intercession which he went to heaven to make for all is a continuation of the blessing. He began to bless them on earth and he went to heaven to go on with it. The ascended Christ reigns with blessings to bestow on his people. But secondly, he also reigns with vindication. He reigns with vindication. It was interesting that uh, this week I saw that this past Tuesday, three men stood before Judge Nancy Russo of the Cuyahoga County Court in Ohio. They were there because they had been previously convicted of shooting and killing a man in 1995. But now, decades later, a key witness has recanted his eyewitness account's testimony. And further investigation uh, revealed that evidence implicating another man as being guilty of the crime was never presented at trial. So what is one of the most difficult things in our criminal justice system, these men were permitted a retrial, which means given the circumstances, they will now essentially go free because the evidence that used to be there against them is no longer there. For decades claiming innocence, they served time for a crime and now they have been vindicated by the court. They have been vindicated before the community in which they live. Remember that Jesus, before he went to be crucified, 
stood before the full assembly of the Jewish religious leaders and they accused him of crimes. They accused him of sin and of blasphemy. And they put this question to him, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. And they began to punch him and beat him and rip their clothes, believing him to be a blasphemer. Jesus confirms that he is the divine Son of God and is declared guilty of blasphemy. They don't believe he's the Son of God. But what does he say? He says, I never came out and said, I'm the Christ, because you would have refused to believe me, even as you refuse to believe me now. What is the only evidence that he says you will receive that I am the Christ? My ascension. You will see me, the Son of Man, at the right hand of power but with God. Though accused of blasphemy and execution and executed, Jesus is now vindicated by his heavenly Father. By his resurrection and his reception into heaven, he is declared to be the innocent and righteous Christ. And now, it is not surprising why, when Paul quotes one of the earliest Christian hymns, we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this idea of vindication through ascension plays a key role. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul says that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. There is no doubt now that Jesus is, was, forever will be exactly who he said he was because God raised him from the dead and brought him back to the glories of heaven. As the ascended king, Christ reigns with blessing for his people in vindication over his enemies and with authority over all things. This is the third thing that we need to see about the ascended Christ, that he reigns in authority. Just as Jesus had previously told the Sanhedrin that he would be seated at the right hand of the power of God, so now he is carried up into heaven. So we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? Well, that imagery of, of being at the, the right hand of the king denotes a place of privilege, denotes a place of responsibility and authority. As the sovereign ruler over all creation, Christ was given the privilege of being enthroned at the right hand of God. And when we look through the Old Testament, we see this idea of God's right hand is used as a symbol for God's presence, God's power, and God's protection. So now, having taken on flesh and died in obedience to God's plan to save sinners, Christ is raised and seated in heaven in this place of privilege. And so once again, Paul unpacks what this means for us in Ephesians 1. There we're told about the working of God's great might, that working which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him, where? At the right hand in the heavenly places. Same thing. Why is he seated there? What is it about? He is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. This is where Christ reigns. 
next to his father's side. And he reigns there over all things. Every rule, every authority, every power is now subservient to the authority of Christ. Some even acknowledge this today, quite surprisingly. Uh, through a series of events that are too complex for this sermon, but you can ask about later. Uh, it was uh, revealed to me that you could watch the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II on YouTube. I had to do it. So that's what I did. And it's interesting. 1952, Queen Elizabeth II is installed as the monarch of the British people. And she is greatly honored at this occasion. I mean, it puts... It puts the, uh, the oath of office for the President of the United States to utter shame. But part of the pomp and ceremony, the queen is seated on the throne and she is given something called the sovereign's orb, which is part of the crown jewels. And as the archbishop of the Church of England hands her this orb, Elizabeth was told, receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ, our Redeemer. Elizabeth, you are about to take hold of one of the last remaining empires in the world. But remember, even you are under the authority of Christ. That is a powerful statement and one that I hope she understands and believes. This is the final picture. This is, how, this is how Luke ends the gospel. This is how he wants you to go away remembering Jesus. You, you hear it read at a church, perhaps you're wealthy enough to, to have it on a papyrus scroll. He wants you to go away with this mental picture of Jesus, a picture of glory, a picture of triumph as he reigns as king over all all things. It is the culmination of everything that he has been telling us about the ministry of Jesus as the Savior of the world. But that's not the last thing he wants you to do. That's the last picture of Christ that he wants you to have, but the last thing he wants you to do with his gospel is to understand how we ought to respond to Jesus as the ascended king. What difference does it make in our life? And this is what we see in the last two verses, 52 through 53, here we see the commissioned church. We see the commissioned church. Remember that we saw in the previous passages, Jesus uh, telling his disciples, commissioning them to go into all the world and bear witness to the gospel to uh, the gospel of himself, that he was the one who fulfilled all the promises to be the Savior that the world needs. It would be Jesus' disciples, the church, that would preach repentance and forgiveness in his name. That's the commissioning they've got, and then he blesses them and he leaves. And how do they respond? Now, I would think they would be sad. I mean, you think about what they went through for those three days thinking that their entire world had just fallen apart. They had put their faith in Jesus. They thought he was the Christ. Uh, they thought he was going to reign over Israel and drive out the Romans. And suddenly he's on a Roman cross dying before their eyes. And they just thought, it's over. It's done. What happened? We, we thought that this was the man. And now on the third day that they are mystified. They are, they are disbelieving for joy, Luke says. Jesus rose from the dead and actually is the Savior that they were looking for. And he talks to them for the next 40 days. 
And now he says, I'm leaving. I mean, you would think they would just be devastated. You would think, no, 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 no. We're, we're just getting used to you being alive again. We have enjoyed the teaching. We've enjoyed the fellowship. Jesus, don't go. But that's not their response. There's nothing in this text that leads us to think they had hearts that were sorrowful. Just the opposite. They are overjoyed that he is taking his place at the right hand of his heavenly father. Notice how the church responds. Jesus was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. At least three applications emerge from these verses. First of all, we ought to respond to the ascended Christ with Christ-centered worship with Christ-centered worship. Because we're so used to the terminology, we're tempted at least, if not likely, to just pass over these words. They worshiped him and not understand the full import that I think Luke intends for us to see and therefore God intends for us to see. Just from the viewpoint of vocabulary and grammar, Luke is signaling something is significant here. If, if I preach an entire sermon and use the word adoration, adoration, we must adore, he has given adoration, we must bow down in adoration, and then at the very end I said, we must worship him. Boom. Something would catch your attention, right? And Luke does the same thing. He has talked about worship. Our English Bibles have worship, but only in this last verse does he use this particular word for worship in Greek. He is saving it till the very end. Why? Because he intends it to capture our attention. Think for a minute. Stop. Don't get caught up in the joy just yet. Think about who is here and who is worshiping. From childhood, these pious Jews were taught there is one God and he alone is to be worshiped. We heard it from, we heard it from Isaiah. We see it in Deuteronomy 6. The Lord, Yahweh, our God, is one. Worship him alone. No other gods, no other idols, nothing. Earlier I spoke of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II when that crown was placed on her head in that video, at least as far as I could tell, without any verbal cue or physical sign. Maybe there were banners that dropped and I just didn't see it on camera. I don't know. But almost spontaneously... This assembly of dignitaries, formal aristocratic people here to view this coronation spontaneously burst out with, God save the queen! God save the queen! God save the queen! It was chilling. And at their best, at their best, when the truth is driven home to them as it was on Mount Carmel the day that Elijah triumphed over the prophets of Baal. Israel responds like this. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. At their best, they understood there is only one God and we worship him. It is Old Testament theology 101. And these disciples knew that. Jesus himself makes it clear in the gospel 
that that is the response. When Satan comes at him and he takes him to the top of the temple and he gives him a vision of all the world and says, you worship me and this world will be yours. How does he respond? He quotes from Deuteronomy. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Everybody knows this. Jesus preaches this. But then all of a sudden, Jesus dies. He comes back to life. He ascends to the Father, and these God-fearing, Old Testament-loving disciples of Jesus do what? They worshipped Him. It does not say they worshipped God, as we would expect, but they worshipped Christ. What does that mean? It does not mean that we stop worshipping God the Father. It does not mean that the Old Testament religion was somehow wrong. What it means is Jesus has more deeply revealed and clarified who God is. Yes, there is one God, but that one God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Bible makes clear that because Jesus is our entry point into fellowship with the triune God, he therefore becomes the focus of our worship and our preaching. Therefore, now to worship God rightly is to worship the risen and ascended Christ. We worship God the Father through God the Son in the power of God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is meant to bear witness to Christ. And as our minds and hearts come to understand who He is, we are to put our faith in Him. And when we put our faith in Christ, He is glorified. And Jesus said that when He is glorified, the Father who sent Him is glorified. Therefore, our genuine biblical worship must be Christ-centered worship, just as it was for these apostles. Furthermore, we do not mean the simple worship uh, that we engage in like this on Sunday mornings. In the New Testament, really, as much as the Old Testament as well, we see worship is not just about a service in the sense of a gathering. It is about a daily life of adoration and action. So students, how you do your schoolwork is either going to proclaim that Christ is king or that you are an idolater. As you go to work and serve your boss, you're either going to declare that Christ is king or that you are an idolater. Wives, how you respond to your husbands and husbands, how you treat your wives will say whether or not Christ is king and you worship him or you are an idolater. The Bible says every waking moment of your life is an act of worship to somebody. And Luke wants us to see. Luke is pushing us towards and calling us to see that it is appropriate, that it is Christ-centered worship. Secondly, notice that these disciples responded with joyful obedience. With joyful obedience. Previously, Jesus had told them, wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. We saw that just in the previous verse, verse 49 that we saw last Sunday. And now Luke says that after he ascends, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. In other words, they did what Jesus said to do. They obeyed him. He said, don't get going to the Great Commission yet. Go to Jerusalem, wait there, and I will send the Spirit, then go. And so what do they do? 
They go to Jerusalem and they wait for the Spirit. They recognize Jesus' rightful authority and they obey. And moreover, they obey with great joy. You see, I think it's important to make that point because one of the great temptations for us, even as disciples, is to begrudge the authority of Christ. Is to obey, but to do so without joy. To do so because of fear, either of what God's going to do to us or what others are going to think of us. To, to, to reduce obedience to some kind of a checkmark thing, even salvation to some kind of a, of a mechanical uh, algebraic formula, where if you just plug God's grace in and my faith, out pops a, a, a saved, maturing Christian. It doesn't work that way. Remember, we obey not just an abstract law, an abstract word, but the word made flesh. When we when we believe and we experience salvation when we obey God, it is always oriented around a person named Jesus Christ. Therefore, our obedience ought to be joyful because of what he has done for us. But at the same time, you say, what if I don't have joy? What do I do then? Well, don't disobey, right? I mean, there are times when doing our duty is all that we can do. We struggle at times in our life. And it is all that we can do to just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And God is incredibly kind and patient to us during those times. But God is also, in those times, never going to forsake the promise that we have in James chapter 4, that if we will simply draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And in drawing near to us, we will experience joy. Why? Because the way in which we draw near to God is a filling of His Spirit. And in John 16, Jesus says, I am sending the Spirit that your joy may be full. So this is normal Christianity. A life of full, on, totally committed obedience that is not hard-boiled and hard-nosed and hard-shelled and, and just crash into the world. It's like, oh, I've got to obey, got to obey. It is a life full of joy. It is obedience with a smile on our face. That's what God wants for us. The third thing that we see is not just Christ in our worship or joyful obedience. We see thankful community. Thankful community. Luke says they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. There are about 120 committed disciples at this point. And one of the responses they had to the risen and reigning Christ was not just to worship individually, but together. And more than just worshiping through sacrifices at the temple, they would gather together during the times of prayer at the temple. We know from the book of Acts that there was a specific area called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Porch, depending on your translation, that ran along the outer court of the Gentiles on the eastern side of the temple. And the Christians kind of took over that space for their own unique gatherings of Christ-centered worship. There the believers gathered together for worship and specifically for prayer, sometimes daily. I mean, think about that. To be honest... Most of us struggle to be here four, once a week, four times a month. Imagine Christians after 12, 14-hour shifts working in the Roman Empire gathering together for worship daily. 
they were there continually told, in the temple blessing God. That is, offering prayers of praise and thanksgiving, blessing God because he had blessed them. Isn't it interesting that when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, his response was, pray like this, our Father who is in heaven. He didn't just say, Father who is in heaven, my Father who is in heaven, but our Father. That doesn't mean that private individual prayer is forbidden, but it does mean that a priority for Christ is corporate gathered prayer. He intends, he delights in we, his brothers and sisters, coming together to bless God because of all the blessings that he has poured out to us. And I think that there are lots of reasons why that's a priority for Christ and why it ought to be a priority for us. Left to ourselves, we are tempted to become very narrow in our thinking and in our praying. Without the diversity of God's people around us, we can grow stale in our view of the world, especially missing all that we could be thankful for. We forget that life doesn't revolve around us and our family and our small circle of friends, but there are, um, there's a global church out there experiencing trial and blessing much greater than ours. And because of what God is doing in their midst, he deserves to be blessed. Apart from setting aside time, making it a priority to gather the church in prayer, we not only neglect a Christ-taught, spirit-driven, God-honoring practice, but ultimately we fail to love God and love our neighbor as we should. When we pray by ourselves, there is a great temptation to pray for ourselves and for ourselves alone. But because Christ had died, he had risen from the dead, and he was ascended to the Father, ought we not, like the disciples, ought we not to also gather together as his children? Ought we not follow the example of these early Christians spending time with one another, boldly approaching God's throne in prayer, praising and thanking him for the many blessings he has poured out and continues to pour out in Christ? I think it's interesting and shows not just the historical part, but the literary excellence of Luke, that he begins the gospel the same way that he ends the gospel. Luke, as it were, ties the threads together. In the opening chapter, you'll remember we saw a priest waiting for the consolation of Israel that would come in Christ, serving God in the temple. Now, now Luke shows us the fulfillment of Israel's consolation and the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. The witnesses of those things gathered together in the temple. At the beginning of Luke, we saw that though wearied by hundreds of years of silence from God, the people stood in wonder at this new work that God was beginning to do. Now, at the end of the gospel, after almost 40 years, the people of God stand in the temple rejoicing and giving thanks at the finished work of God through their Savior, Jesus Christ, ready to take the good news to Israel and to the nations. My question with which I end this morning is simply this. Will we respond in the same way? Father, we are so thankful for your servant Luke and this gospel that he's given to us. Father, though, probably relying on the previous work of Mark, he is nevertheless, through his own diligence, presented us with stories and teachings that are unique to him and his gospel, and therefore provide a unique contribution to our understanding of who Jesus was during his earthly life and who he is today as the ascended king. So, Father, we treasure this part of your word. We treasure the gospel of Luke. But more importantly, I pray that we would treasure your son 
about whom Luke has written, that we would see him in all his glory and therefore we might come to put our faith in him, to be assured in that faith, and that we might see how we ought to respond and live as his disciples. Father, there can be no greater joy in this life or the life to come to know that we are in fellowship with you through Jesus, your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.